Welcome to this edition of This Is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. This edition is sponsored by the Tricord Group, leading successful relationship constructs for over 25 years, and VIM, helping the architecture and design disciplines design, deliver, and operate better buildings for a better world. Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. In the studio with me today is Bob Hughes, the Economics Fellow of the Design Futures Council. He is also a senior economist with the American Institute of Economic Research. Bob has been a friend and a colleague with us here at Design Intelligence for some time, and we're always happy when he joins us to talk about economics. Bob, thanks for joining me in the studio today. Oh, thanks for having me, Dave. I'm excited to be here. Well, we have seen quite a ride, haven't we, over the last year? I mean, if you think about it, I remember at Design Intelligence, us gathering at the office on March 16th, 2020, and saying, everyone, it's time to go home. And we walked out the door, and that was it. And uh, though we have been congregating safely just uh, one day a week, uh, coming back into this, Life has changed forever when it comes to the economy, the way people think about their work, the way people think about coming to work and the places that they work. It's, it's been an extraordinary adventure, to say the least. Some observations about this wild ride from your end. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the events of the past year are in many ways unprecedented. Unfortunately, pandemics are, are not unheard of. They, there have been a number throughout the uh, history here. But, you know, as far as uh, the, the impact of, of this particular pandemic, a global pandemic on the economy, you know, no living economist has ever seen this kind of sequence of events and, and have been able to see and measure, gauge the impact. Um, you know, with our economic data system, we, we're, we're quantifying so many of the impacts and it, it certainly can't even begin to impact you know the, the full picture but yes uh, it, it's been a, a truly historic year you know to, to the credit of the u.s economy and, and americans and people around the world there is a lot of resiliency in the u.s economy and uh, we are lucky enough to to be on a good path right now we are on a road to recovery you know the the most recent data we've seen a uh, real gdp gross domestic product grew at a, a 6.4% annual rate in that first quarter it was very broad based gains we had very strong consumer spending you know, good gains in in business investment particularly in equipment and intellectual property the single family housing residential construction has been doing very well Federal government spending, uh, given you know, what we've seen coming in terms of fiscal programs, not surprisingly, federal government spending all, they all did very well. Uh, if there was one notable lagger in, in that first quarter was uh, the, the non-residential structures, the, the segment where the companies in the built environment tend to operate, you know, that, that did see a 4.8% decline in that first quarter. And that was the sixth in a row for that, that category. So you know, it does suggest that, that the built environment, the commercial construction area is, is still facing some challenges. 
So you spoke about the resilience in our economy and how we're, we are coming back. What would you say are the primary drivers behind that that could sustain us through this recovery? Any observations along those lines? Sure. Well, the nature of this recession was very different. It was a policy-induced and, and agree or disagree with it, you know, the fact is that it, it was the lockdowns that caused economic activity to plunge. You know, the good thing to it is that recovery is simply reversing out a lot of those policies. So as the spread of the virus is, is contained and the, the restrictive policies are eased, a lot of the damage that was done is being undone fairly easily. Right there, we've got a good driver for continued growth in that, you know, just letting people get back to work, opening up the doors, you know, letting people or, or convincing people it's safe to, as well as letting people get back out and shop and go to the office and, and travel, you know, those are all going to pick up on their own once you know, the restrictions are lifted. To go with that, we still have policies that are very supportive. Fiscal policy and monetary policy are both both quite aggressive. So, you know, now you're, you mix the health policy into the conversation. And, and that's really where we're going to be going. You know, if we get the policies to be supportive, I think the natural path of least resistance is, is for better growth and, and expansion recovery. It's interesting because this dynamic is quickly as it went down, it's coming back pretty quickly, like you described. And we have the right policies in place. And we're watching some very good behaviors in the economy. It's almost as if we had the analogous to a a Lego house that we built, and we broke it all apart, spread all the pieces around, and now we're left with, what do we want to rebuild from there? Do we want the same house that we had on the tabletop before, or are we going to use these pieces to create something different for ourselves? And certainly we're seeing that with the radical rise and shift over to e-commerce at a rate that <laughs> that was accelerated because of this far beyond anyone's expectations. We're seeing, as I described earlier, this new orientation to work and what that means. We're seeing a much higher dependency on information technology infrastructure than perhaps that we have taken for granted before. It's now become a critical essential. So many pieces and parts are going to reform our society through this. Some things will be left off the table. Uh, Whole new things will be brought forward. It's really an exciting time that is not to be insensitive in any way to the awfulness that occurred. People's lives were racked, uh, deaths, uh, lost uh, loved ones, uh, jobs were lost, stress and anxiety, and and, uh, so many awful things that came out of this. But at the same time, we see a silver lining in this kind of reset of our go forward. But with all of that, Bob, we've watch through the policies of the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, some pretty aggressive policies. Our Fed's balance sheet has gotten heavier than I think any other time. What should we be thinking about that, about the level of debt that we've taken on as a government to help us through this time? And what might be those implications, the implications of this over the next few years to come? Sure. Well, the, you're absolutely right. The Fed policy, the Fed has reacted in very aggressive terms and, and appropriately so, given the severity of, of the downturn. You know, the, the Fed's balance sheet, I th- the assets right now are about $7.5 trillion. That's about 
$5 trillion in U.S. Treasury securities. That's, that's debt issued by the federal government. And about $2.2 trillion in mortgage-backed securities. Those are the two largest categories of holdings on the Fed's balance sheet. You know, to be honest, I'm, I'm not terribly worried about the size of the balance sheet at this moment yet. I, I don't want to get too technical on sort of how the banking system and the Federal Reserve interact uh, it, it's it's a you know sort of a deep plumbing topic, but let me just try and give you a, a simplified version. As the Fed buys securities, one of two things can be going on: either reserves in the banking system expand, and those reserves are sort of what allow banks to make loans. A fractional banking system: the for every dollar a bank takes in, they put say ten percent in reserves, and they can loan out the other ninety cents. So those reserves, when the Fed buys securities, it can boost the reserves, which allows banks to lend. They may not. They don't have to. And in fact, banking system reserves are enormous right now. So, But it, it becomes a banking decision whether they feel they have safe borrowers and qualified borrowers to lend money to. If they decide they don't, if the if their view of the economic outlook is poor or they're not getting the borrowers they want or whatever, then the money just sits in the banking system. That really doesn't impact economic activity or inflation, the, the two things most associated with Fed policy. On the other hand, if the, the Fed purchases of securities are essentially taking deficit spending by the government and monetizing it, just magically turning it into dollars, and it is out in the real economy, that's where you start to have real implications. And it, it, it leads to activity because the, the government is spending it. And so infrastructure projects or social programs or whatever the government is spending money on is getting that money. It, it has impacts on activity. And it then can also impact prices if, if it's pumping out too much money into people's hands or projects where resources are limited, it drives prices higher. That's really the split between how the Fed's balance sheet can impact the economy. Going forward, we're going to have to watch to see if the federal government continues to have enormous deficits. And again, I think they're appropriate in in a crisis like we've seen. Uh, as you know, and, and for, for for design intelligence, I I was somewhat criticizing the enormous deficits before the pandemic. At, at that stage of an economic expansion, we should not have been running massive deficits. And yet we still are. But now in the recovery phase from, from the pandemic and the worst you know, recession, the sharpest, most severe recession, it, it's appropriate and, and fine. But it can't continue forever. Uh, nobody, government or otherwise, can run deficits forever and pile up debt. You know, that, that is a concern. And then the other thing to watch is the banking system, whether they take all these reserves that they're sitting on and start lending out aggressively. That would bring back memories of the housing bubble when when mortgages were attained way too easily. So right now it's not a threat, but it has the potential to be. And you know the best thing we can do is is watch for uh, well Fed policy and see if they continue to do all these purchases. And then if the government continues to run the deficits as part of stimulus and support for the economy, and if the banking system starts lending aggressively, um, that can all lead to trouble. So we take on all this debt. How do we ever pay it back? I mean, what does that look like? Is it the economics of inflation that make it decrease? Is it actually using our increased tax revenues to literally pay things down? How do we deal with this debt into the future? 
I'm going to be nitpicky and say there's there's two ways to to phrase it. There's how can we and how do we. Um, <laughs> yeah. How can we is is the easier, more technical answer. And you're right; we can grow our way out of it just by you know slowly easing back on the deficits, and eventually the economy grows faster than the deficits, and the ratio of debt to economic output shrinks. You know that's an easy way. Inflation is is a way to decrease the value of historical debt. You know, simply running surpluses, you know, being very aggressive about and turning deficits into surpluses would would decrease the debt, obviously, aggressively. How do we do it or what will happen? That I don't know. It is, like I said, it, it is a concern. No entity, whether it be the U.S. government or any other government, can can carry ever-growing amounts of debt forever. At some point, you got to pay the piper. And um, it could become a big drag on economic activity if one of the ways that we're forced to do it is through big cuts in spending and big increases in taxes. Uh, you know that would be a, a very bad thing for economic growth. Uh, so we hope it doesn't get to a crisis level where dramatic steps have to be taken. But unfortunately, the, in my view, the track record of the federal government is very little. Tough decision making gets done outside of a crisis. So. We'll have to wait and see on that. But it, it's a concern, probably not one in the short term, but certainly a one for the longer term. Great. Good response. We've watched the banks over many years get very hefty like they are now. And then we've seen almost a pressure on them to let go of some of that. And they begin spending or loaning that money. And over time, it seems that somehow or another, our responsibility eyeglasses get set off to the side and we become blurred and we start loaning out money to people that can't pay the money back. <laughs> we're not doing our diligence around that. How do we break that cycle? I mean, we're watching these unbelievable levels of reserves in the banks. We're seeing the banks in wonderful shape. What are the banks going to do with all of these assets that they have? That is sort of the the sixty four dollar question. Um, you know, good good banking regulation is, is going to be key. You know, and it's 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 shades of gray, and it, it's a little disappointing to see the policymakers and the advocates on both sides painting the pictures black and white. There should be you know zero to minimal regulation versus ones that want you know heavy regulation or or breaking up the big banks. Extreme answers rarely turn out to be optimal. You know, it, it shades of gray. Good banking policy that keeps an eye, regulates, and watches the banks uh, individually and as a system to make sure that they don't take on excess uh, risks is is going to be important. And just that, you know, you hope that the the bankers themselves are smart enough not to get caught up in ever riskier lending practices. They 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 paid the price in two thousand, as we all did, in the housing bubble in in two thousand eight and nine. You know, you'd like to think that we can learn from our mistakes. It, it sometimes can be a short-term gain, but it, it isn't sustainable. And so, you, you would hope that the the bankers in charge both know and remember the experience and and learn from it. One of the things we started tracking last year was the number of rising debt defaults, primarily in the commercial space, uh, commercial loans, mortgage-backed securities. Now, across several classes of real estate is what was happening. Some of those, of course, most of those got deferred. No one was wanting to really foreclose or take back the properties, and particularly in that very distressed time. I think the government put some rules in place to to kind of push back the 
the debt holders. But now here we are entering into, well, we're in the second quarter now of 2021. We're seeing light very clearly at the end of the tunnel. It doesn't particularly mean that all of those debt holders are going to get paid back. What are you folks tracking and what are you seeing along the future of debt defaults coming out of this? Yeah, that, that again, is, is one of the key questions. It's a part of the uniqueness to this whole cycle. The fact that the government, part of the government policy response was to put moratoriums on evictions and, and you know, really freeze a lot of the functioning of a certain part of the financial and legal system. How it unfolds, it, it, it's a tough one to really anticipate because, uh, again, there is no precedent. So this is going to be a fly by the seat of your pants for government policymakers and, and the regulators and then the, the financial system, the asset holders and debt holders to, to figure out how you know to, to get things flowing again without causing any damage. As you pointed out earlier, it, did, it doesn't make any sense to spiral down and make a bad situation worse. So it's in everybody's best interest to continue to support both the, the, the landlords, the asset holders, and the debt holders. I honestly don't know how that works out, and that is one of the big areas I'm, I'm concerned about and, and watching. You know, the level of defaults that I've seen, I, I look across the broad spectrum, not just the, the commercial property. You know, they definitely have risen, but they're, from what I can see, they're not really at catastrophic levels. So that's good. But, you know, how they undo the policies that were put in place quickly and, and somewhat hastily and without any precedent, uh, it, it's going to be tricky. So that that is something we have to watch. But you know, it, a lot of it will also come back to, again, if you get the real economy, sort of the activity levels back, if you get people back into their businesses, into their restaurants and their storefronts, uh, into the malls, you know, get people employed, get the shoppers back, get activity going, that's sort of the tide that can lift all boats. So hopefully an improving economy will make the workouts of all the situations, the financial problems, a little easier if people are working and incomes are up and businesses are are finally getting some revenue in the door and customers in the door. By and large, though, you're pretty optimistic about where we're going in the future. What might you say are are a couple of the top-of-mind optimisms that you have about where we're going? And I'm going to ask you the same question. What might be some of your pessimism about where we're going in our economy in the future? I think some of the optimistic things, again, it, it, it's all on the premise that the American economy is just incredibly resilient and adaptable. I mean, that's just amazing how you know the private sector is able to respond to challenges and to opportunities, both with remarkable speed and, and um, just tremendous adaptability. Working from home can really have a big influence, as one example. So you know, the ability for people's lives just to be have a better quality of life. Businesses are going to figure out partially by need if you can't have as many people in an elevator in a skyscraper. So you got to have less people at any one time. But the, the, you know, the silver lining is, you know, people who want to work from home have more flexibility, will spend less time commuting and more time either on productive work or social items that might help with mental health, we've seen a lot of stories about that throughout the pandemic, could help rebuild communities. I, I personally out walking my dog twice a day now, and I've met far more people in my neighborhood than I ever knew in the last 15 years. You know, I think there are some silver linings, both from a business point of view, from a social and community point of view, and certainly from a business point of view, as, as we go through this adaptation 
technology spending is going to continue. Uh, I think there are opportunities for the built environment to reconfigure. Uh, you mentioned earlier the, the accelerated changeover to some e-commerce opportunities, and that could include driverless trucks that are going to make it faster and more efficient and safer. You know, just any number of things that I think are all you know really positive changes. Uh, I sometimes look at the what the travel industry did to adapt after uh, 9/11, and nobody likes security lines, but we managed to get it to a point where it's you know s- relatively pain-free uh, in most cases. Uh, I think uh, I, have, I have very high confidence in the, the general public and the business sector, the private sector, to adapt, and I think we're going to find you know at least some good things coming out of, of this you know terrible experience. It's really positive. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. And we've talked about, you know, a few of the pessimisms here. You know, we just, and it's really just still the, uh, I wouldn't call it pessimisms as much as just uncertainties. You know, how are certain things going to be addressed coming out of this? And what will we do in the future about this debt that we've taken on? It's a, it's a real thing. It has to be dealt with, but not today. It will be dealt with at another time some interesting observations. Any parting thoughts while you're with us? It's been just a, an absolutely unprecedented and historic time over this past year. I do think the, the overall outlook is, is fairly positive. I'd say the, the one you know, risk or concern that we haven't really addressed, and it still lingers, is the virus itself. We've done a reasonably good job getting the vaccine out there, the distribution. Uh, here in my state of Connecticut, they just announced today that 50% of the population is now fully vaccinated. Uh, something like 69 has at least one shot, and that's not including all the children that aren't even eligible yet. So they've done a good job, but there's still a lot to go. You know, one of the things that worries me are, are is the potential for variants. And so far, the variants you know, haven't been too big an issue here in the U.S., and, and you know, I know the the vaccine is a is a touchy topic for a lot of people, but you have to sort of look at unvaccinated people as basically incubators for potential future variants. And I fully respect everybody's right to to make decisions, but the more people that are are unvaccinated, simply there's going to be a higher risk of variants developing that could send us through this whole process again. So that's a concern. And again, absolutely no judgment on people and their decisions, but it's just, it's sort of a factual thing. You know, the the more people that that can host the virus, then the more chance of that virus mutating in one of those incubators and starting the whole thing again. So that, that, that's one thing that worries me. And I said, you know, some of the, some of the fallout from the, the freezing of the process, freezing of the system with regard to the uh, foreclosures and, and the, the debt delinquencies and, and that sort of thing, that needs to be worked out. I, I believe it will, but it, it's something that's sort of an unknown. Bob Hughes, it's always wonderful to spend time with you, and I know that our audience loves to hear from you. So thank you for joining us on This Is Design Intelligence. Thank you, Dave. It was a pleasure to be here. Until next time, I'm Dave Gilmore. And this is Design Intelligence. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of This is Design Intelligence. Sponsored by the Tricord Group and Vim. The producer for This is Design Intelligence is Laura Spells. Sound engineering by Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.